Okay, welcome everyone. It's lovely to see so many of you. Thank you very much for coming. And today is the first event we're having on the new research theme on love. Huh? And this theme is gonna be explored through lots of series of events that Alice Raj and Andrew Dean here in the audience are leading, but we're also inviting lots of UCL academics to suggest the events or the proposals. And I think the deadline is 18th of November for the second semester. So if you have any ideas, just think about that. Um, most of the lofter uh, events try to tackle ideas or general concerns that are, and we want to think why lofter is important nowadays to think of different things. So one of, one of these ideas uh, is gonna be explored in two weeks. Uh, we're talking about curating uh, humor, and we have invited the directors of the Goldsmith CCA and South London Gallery, which both of them open their new galleries or the new spaces at the same time and with exhibitions about humor and love. And we thought it was a quite a good idea to explore this idea with them, why they did that, and all the consequences that love has in, in that project. Uh, today's project, uh, today's general concern is the idea of the pervasivity of irony, how irony has impregnated, oh, well, this concern is like probably for already two decades and has spread it everywhere and is very related to these ideas of post-truth or the lack of commitment, the lack of love, etc. In this idea, the post-ironic turn, a, a turn to a commitment to love, to responsibility, we are wondering if there's room for laughter and for humor. Is laughter a tool for detachment of the world or a tool for commitment, etc., etc.? It's quite an ambitious question and it's a very exploratory event. So we've asked quite a lot from the speakers. And for this ambitious thing, we invited Hugh Stevens, who is senior lecturer in English in UCL, who's going to help us explore this idea with all the speakers. And thank you very much to all the speakers for coming today. And thank you, Hugh. Over to you. Um, okay, welcome um, to tonight's event. I'll just, I'll just quickly explain the format for the evening. Uh, we've got five presentations and each of the speakers have been asked to speak for eight to ten minutes. Um, and after that we'll have an open discussion and I'll chair that and hope to make sure that everybody who gets a chance to speak um, does so. But often maybe there, there might not be time for everyone to speak. We'll be ending the session with drinks where we can carry on a conversation in a more informal manner. Um, yeah, I'll just um, begin by naming the speakers, but I'll introduce them individually before each of the talks. Uh, we're beginning with uh, Seth Graham. He's followed by Florian Musknog, uh, then Shumi Bors, uh, Lan Arbskogati, and then Hill and Galia Kolekti. Um, yeah, so the title for the panel is Laughter in a post-ironic turn, sincerity and humor in contemporary expressions of irony. Uh, and the panel's gonna discuss contemporary uses of irony and or post-irony through different modes of expression and the roles that humor and laughter and the embodied expression of laughter play in them. Uh, and I've been doing a little bit of reading on post-irony before the presentation. Um, there's, there's been a lot written on this concept in uh, recent decades, particularly since um, 2001. 
Uh, and some critics and theorists have said that we live in a post-ironic age. Um, and post-irony seems to be defined in different ways. In some ways, it's a, a mode in which the differences between irony and sincerity break down, uh, so that post-irony muddles irony and sincerity. Um, or, or sometimes, uh, in, in the works of David Foster Wallace, for instance, post-irony comes to mean a new mode of sincerity, and perhaps we're living in a new age of sincerity. I'm not really sure what kind of age we're living in. Uh, perhaps we're living in an age where the differences between irony and sincerity are always elusive, blurred, and lost. And with five different presentations, I don't think we'll come up with an, a conclusive answer as to what sort of age we're living in, but I think we'll gain insights into the use of irony, post-irony, and humor in a range of cultural and artistic practices. And we're beginning with scholars working in literature and film, uh, Russian and Italian culture, then we're moving on to architecture, uh, and then we're ending with two presentations on art. But I anticipate that throughout the event, boundaries between disciplines uh, and practices and genres will, I think, always seem to be breaking down. Um, and our first speaker this evening is Seth Graham. Uh, Seth teaches in UCL's School of Slavonic and East European Studies. His broad interests are Russian and Soviet culture, especially film from 1950s to the present, cultural studies, gender studies, humor theory, Central Asian film, and language pedagogy. Uh, and I understand he's working on a book examining the category of genre in Russian cinema since the late 80s. Um, and he's the author of several articles, book chapters, and editor of collections of, public, of published essays, and also editor of a monograph entitled Resonant Dissonance, The Russian Joke in Cultural Context. So over to Seth. Thank you, Hugh. And <clears throat> Every file on this laptop is titled Post Ironies. I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> you have this if you want to pass right. the slides as I'll you wish. Okay. <laughs> okay, great. Uh, good evening, good afternoon. It's hard to tell these days. Um, and as you can tell from my, uh, my accent, probably, yes, uh, I'm an American uh, who studies Russia, who has been asked to comment on the death of irony in the place of laughter in contemporary society. Uh, so the temptation to launch into a diatribe about the current US president is strong, uh, but I will res resist the trumpetation uh, as I share my somewhat impressionistic and aphoristic uh, responses to the 10 provocative points helpfully given to us by, the, by Albert and the organizers of this panel and featured in the publicity to it. So I, I'm going to be uh, obedient and methodical in, in responding to all of these 10 points plus a few other things. Uh, so the first one is we are living in a post-ironic age. Ironic doubt is just dissatisfaction elevated into a lifestyle. Ironic doubt elevated into a lifestyle evokes um, many things. Uh, to cultural consumers, uh, Kerouacian beatniks, or Holden Caulfield, or 1970s punk culture, or Generation X, my own generation's cynicism, 
uh, or even contemporary hipster behavior, uh, or any of a number, number of subcultures uh, that we can name. To a Russianist, at least to this Russianist, both sentences of point one reek of late Soviet socialism, uh, or what the anthropologist Alexei Yurchak calls the last Soviet generation, mostly educated urban Soviet citizens who grew up in the 1970s and 1980s. Uh, don't worry, I will be uh, talking about the relevance to contemporary uh, culture, but this is the prism through which um, I, I, I've approached this topic. The postmodern hypothesis that meta-narratives meta uh, are in irreversible decline uh, was in that environment, the late Soviet uh, period, not just a theoretical claim or a model, but a lived process as Soviet ideology first stagnated, then died, then ostentatiously decomposed, and then arguably uh, disappeared. Well into the 1980s, that ideology had clumsily yet aggressively dominated the form and content of mass media available for consumption and thus for critical engagement with um, to a degree that is, not dif that is difficult to imagine today, at least in, in, uh, uh, here in our, the culture in which we live and work. A critical mass of the Soviet public, this is uh, Alexei Yurchak's book, by the way, um, came to perceive all mass media communication as disingenuous mechanistic performances. Uh, think of Henri Bergson's idea that the fundamental stimulus for, uh, for laughter uh, is something mechanical encrusted on the living, this famous uh, quotation by the, the philosopher. Mass media texts uh, were always and always, uh, always and already legible uh, as both fully earnest and fully comedic. And again, this is something you can uh, apply uh, to other places and other times. Uh, that built-in self-contradictory modal duality invited a very deep tissue form of irony indeed. And the collective ironic reflex was triggered with increasing frequency as the authoritative version of reality moved uh, farther and farther from lived reality. After a certain point, social life was so rife with absurdities and incongruities that mass media representations of that life as rational, unified, and congruous were for a wide swath of the citizenry impossible to consume without irony. Uh, and again, this, uh, this sounds like a description of uh, the postmodern process, if you will, in, in other cultures too. Um, but in the Soviet uh, Union from the 1950s on, basically, um, um, the responses to it were um, uh, thousands and thousands of, of jokes, anecdoti, about which um, I wrote a book. I won't be telling very many, but just one here to show you um, sort of the spirit. So Khrushchev visits a collective farm, and he's being kind of jokey and, and homey. He says, so how's life, guys? Khrushchev jokes, life's great, the farmers joke back. Um, sometimes I, I tell this joke with, a, with me in the role of Khrushchev and my graduate students in the role of the farmer, so it's a, a transferable joke. Um, Yurchak writes that the most extreme form of irony uh, in the late Soviet period was what is called in Russian uh, stiop. Stiop could be an utterance, a text, a performance, or an entire persona from which the performer is seemingly never out of character. And, and uh, think, uh, and from our perspective, Andy Kaufman, Alan Partridge, uh, Stephen Colbert, if you know the American uh, comedian, uh, and of course, Sasha Baron Cohen. Um, and some of his characters here, 
Um, he's having to use a lot more makeup recently because he's uh, more recognizable. Um, but Yurchak writes that Stiop was a form of irony that was different from other, um, other forms, um, including some of the ones that we know about, some of the Soviet ones that we're familiar with, such as conceptual art, um, or, uh, or a lot, most, uh, many of the jokes that were told, um, or even absurd humor. Uh, Stiop required such a degree of over-identification with the object, person, or idea with which the Stiop, at which the Stiop was directed that it was often impossible to tell whether it was a form of sincere support, subtle ridicule, or a peculiar mixture of the two. And here we have um, the nexus of irony and sincerity uh, about which uh, Hugh was talking uh, earlier. Um, Yurchak gives several examples of Stiop, including a 1991 hour-long television program that some of you may be familiar with, um, in which the artist and musician Sergei Kuryokhin um, presented himself with seamless sincerity as a scholar who has proven scientifically that Lenin was in fact a mushroom uh, due to excessive consumption of hallucinogenic uh, fungi during his years in exile. Um, another example is the Slovenian uh, industrial music group Leibach, which is still, in, still touring with a new lead singer. Um, and this is a group of uh, musicians who began performing while Tito was still alive in the Yugoslavia in the uh, 1980, I believe, um, and caused outrage and confusion with their embrace, seeming embrace, of fascist aesthetics, optics, and language. The word Leibach is, uh, of course, the German name for the capital of Slovenia, Ljubljana. Uh, such totalizing and immersive performances of irony under certain conditions uh, can become a model of behavior and discourse for entire groups of people at large, for the consumers, uh, creating a public and even private culture in which irony is so ubiquitous as to be inescapable. And this leads me to my first cause of death, um, uh, irony, uh, oversaturation. Um, by this, what I mean is, and uh, um, this um, humor me, so to speak, with this metaphor, but a, a weird way to understand this is to think of Robert De Niro's character the beginning of the film Awakenings, 1990, uh, based on the book by Oliver Sacks, the neuroscientist. Um, the body motionless and trapped in a paralytic catatonia that is actually the end stage of uncontrollable bodily tremors. In other words, the tremors are so, um, um, have consumed the body so much that it it's, uh, it's, uh, becomes static. Oh boy. <laughs> Um, so let me go through my examples here. Um, in, in this metaphor, the catatonia is the impotence of irony um, and the, uh, caused by the sheer ubiquity of ironic utterances, which are the uncontrollable tremors. Um, to use another metaphor, military metaphor, um, you could, uh, in the age of the, uh, if irony is a kind of a weapon, the members of a cultural community can become overarmed for various reasons, leading to a free-for-all in which all participants constantly strive to outflank other producers of ironic meaning, uh, both by producing better irony and by unpredictably code switching from irony to sincerity and back. In other words, uh, Twitter. Uh, in the age of the tweet, the meme, the emoji, the gif, TL, semicolon, DR, every social media user can become an instant agent or target of public irony in a way reserved previously for uh, mass media figures, or at least professional artists. Okay. Uh, cause of death number two, 
starvation, and by this I mean um, that um, the end of meta-narrative's discursive authority uh, is always accompanied by the end of our capacity to ridicule that meta-narrative using irony, satire, parody, etc. Uh, in other words, Soviet irony, to use the, uh, that example again, uh, in 1991, when the object of millions of private jokes, comments, gestures, and texts ceased to exist, um, um, the, uh, the potency of, of that form of discourse uh, also ceased to exist. Uh, the uh, cause of death number three is an ignorant audience, one of my favorite Simpsons, where the sort of silly girls that Lisa Simpson has to play with. So are you going to marry a carrot, Lisa? Yes, I'm going to marry a carrot. And, and the irony just flies right over their head. Um, this is um, a slightly more middle-brow or high-brow <laughs> example is a Soviet film from 1947 in which uh, a mole for the Soviet army in Nazi Germany is at a, is at a uh, a dinner and one of the Nazi officers says to victory and he doesn't even want to say that uh, in even undercover so he says to our victory uh, only he know, knows meaning uh, meaning of our okay um, and cause of death number four uh, is displacement by the real and by this I mean uh, something that's been what's been called sincerity in this forum uh, and I'm can I have another 30 seconds to, to finish up okay <laughs> uh, so uh, the, the obituaries of irony written in the wake of 9-11 demonstrated that the ironic mode of discourse can be at risk at moments when the real demands our attention, when literal meaning and sincere engagement with the world seem to be the only acceptable positions. Going back to my beloved USSR, one of the first public expressions of post-Stalinism was an article called On Sincerity in Literature, uh, written nine months after um, Stalin died. Um, and um, in closing, I just want to explain this slide uh, that uh, part of the, the, part of the um, brief we were given here asked us to discuss and consider our own dissatisfaction with the pervasive and contemporary use of irony, laughing at everything and avoiding seriousness. Um, um, and account, sorry, accountability and any sort of commitment to what is expressed. Uh, this sounds like a part of a definition of postmodern irony, of course, but I would counter that many prominent examples of avant-garde and experimental artistic practice for many decades now have preemptively rebutted the criticism that the artist has no investment in the content uh, of the form that they create. Um, the accusation that irony of any kind of counter or any kind of counter hegemonic art, in fact, is a form of surrender due to its reactive and less substantive nature to the discourse against which it's mobilized. Um, so I think of the superhuman feats of endurance and pain of performance artists from Marina Ab Abramovich, who sits at, at a table for nine, ten hours uh, straight. Um, the Russian artist Pyotr Pavlensky, who nailed his scrotum to uh, Red Square. Uh, Leibach, who haven't taken off their pseudo-fascist uniform since the early 1980s. Uh, or even the, the already mentioned David Foster Wallace's um, sort of... Um, heroic graphomania in writing a novel uh, uh, like Infinite Jest. Uh, and these suggest a level of commitment that seems to anticipate and implicitly rebut any suggestion that contemporary art is superficial, hollow, and yes, insincere. Um, uh, and this, these four points are pure Dostoevsky, so I won't say anything about, about those. Um, and hopefully we've talked more about laughter, which I haven't really mentioned. 
but I'm interested in, in laughter. The question is whether it's an utterance or a bodily function. Uh, and uh, in the age of social media, we all have seemed to subcontract laughter to GIFs or abbreviations. Thank you for, for listening. Hi, thanks so much, um, Seth, for such a, a rich talk. Um, I think um, one of the things that, that, that's already become clear to me is it's such a rich topic that it might be hard for speakers to keep to time. So I'm going to try and, 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 and make sure the speakers do because I want to give all of us a chance to come in later. Um, so our next speaker is Florian Musk Musknog. Uh, Florian teaches Italian studies and comparative literature in UCL School of European Languages, Culture and Society. And he has a long-standing interest in literature and theory, um, interests first nurtured when he was an undergraduate studying philosophy and Italian at Oxford. And he's also committed to multidisciplinary inquiry. Um, his book, The Eloquence of Ghosts, about the Italian avant-garde writer Giorgio Manganelli uh, was awarded the Edinburgh Gada Prize in 2012. And Florian writes on experimental literature, the modern and contemporary novel, literary theory, utopia, and genre fiction. Thank you very much. Um, I work on the end of the world at the moment, uh, which is not a laughing matter, as we all know. Um, the reason why the end of the world is a very bleak topic to investigate, at least at first sight, is of course to do with the, um, the pervasive influence of uh, not only the um, imagery, but also the narrative structures of the Book of Revelation, in particular the revelation of um, John of Patmos or St. John the Divine, depending on how sort of much you want to, to associate with it. Is this better? Um, in, in popular culture. So what Marina Warner calls the disturbing diffusion of this biblical a book which has a, an unexamined moral force, a redundant nastiness, the kind of um, that many centuries have thought about justice and humanity have striven to put aside, or what um, biblical scholar John Wallace calls the tendency to conceive the world in starkly dualistic terms, no shades of grey, no moral ambiguity, and we might add no irony, uh, no laughter, uh, a lot of sincerity, but very late sincerity. Um, and uh, the um, this obviously also holds when in the uh, context of sort of 20th and 21st century um, apocalyptic imagination is translated or sort of um, uh, reconsidered um, in the context of secular rewritings as suggested by Warren Wager in, in a seminal book from the 1980s. Um, not um, so apocalypse not as biblical eschatology but as a creative act of the secular imagination. So what I'd like to do, and I hope I'll stick to the time a bit, but you'll see I had 20 slides originally, um, is to give you five working definitions of postmodern apocalypse, working my way from irony, from liberal irony, through humorlessness um, towards um, revelation as a form of apocalyptic laughter. All five are problematic. I'm not suggesting any meaningful trajectory or progression there, but I'm, I'm trying to map them um, for, for further discussion. So uh, Richard Rorty's uh, um, um, important uh, study, Contingency, Irony, and Solidarity, is the, the chronological starting point, and specifically his definition of liberal irony 
and uh, his uh, demand for a post-metaphysical culture that could develop, he suggests, according uh, or in parallel to the sort of earlier development he sees from a religious to post-religious uh, culture, and that is for Rorty equally desirable. And he gives the example of the novel, the movie, the TV program gradually but steadily replacing the sermon and the treaties as the principal vehicles of social change and progress, and he imagines a liberal utopia where this replacement would receive a kind of recognition um, that would be part of a general turn against theory and towards narrative. The second definition, um, very close in time, um, related to Rorty's um, is um, Richard Delamora's um, definition in the introduction to his collection of essays on postmodern apocalypse. Unlike Rorty, um, in, in the book previously mentioned, Delamora actually specifically uses the label, the category of postmodernism, which I will also use, but I will use deliberately not in a sort of um, historiographic but in an open-ended way to, to reflect the category of sort of post-irony that we were encouraged to work with. So Delamora says that what happens to apocalypse um, towards the, the end, we're now meant to say of the sort of previous century, um, the, is the, he says the uncircumscribed field of narrative at the uh, found the millennium continues to be structured, if only negatively, in relation to apocalypse. This unsettling realization requires cultural critics to subject to ever-renewed analysis the framing of popular political beliefs, uh, the popular and political beliefs in apocalyptic narratives. And the, the background for this, the kind of sort of context in which Delamore advances this idea is um, um, Jameson's uh, famous definition of pastiche in his book, Postmodernism, uh, The Logic of um, Cultural Capitalism. Um, and uh, it's worth reading out because it refers to, to laughter, or rather the absence of laughter, um, imitation, uh, pastiche, as he says, imitation of a peculiar mask, speech in a dead language, but it is ne a neutral practice of such mimicry without any of parodies, ulterior motives, amputated of the satiric impulse, devoid of laughter, and of any conviction that alongside the abnormal tongue you have momentarily borrowed. Um, the pastiche, I'm not sure whether I've transcribed this correctly, apologies. Pastiche is thus blank parody, a statue with blind eyeballs. What I was interested in is the sort of the idea of an absence of laughter. Um, pastiche is sort of already a step away from the, the kind of liberal irony that, that Rorty um, encouraged us uh, uh, to embrace. Um, um, a very good example of a text for me that of a novel that hovers between, that is apocalyptic, in theme and in tone, and uh, that hovers between liberal irony and a kind of sort of um, um, pastiche, uh, devoid of laughter, is Bernard Malamud's um, God's Grace, his, his last novel, not his most well-known novel, the one which he was particularly proud of, and which he himself described as apocalyptic comedy, actually. It's, and he, he opens it, it's the story of a last survivor, a lapsed, uh, um, Jew who was who, who trained initially to become a rabbi, then became a scientist, and then is the only surviving man um, after a nuclear war uh, who finds himself uh, on a ship. Uh, shipwreck. God appears. It's one of the rare examples of God actually appearing in a novel as a character, and he puts him on an island with a lot of chimpanzees. 
um, um, the, um, the, uh, the, the, the novel opens with the claim that this is that story, the thermonuclear war between the Jangs and the Drushkis, we heard about earlier, in consequence of which they had destroyed themselves and madly all other inhabitants of the earth. Um, this is that story, that story is revelation, of course, or sort of more broadly apocalypse, biblical, Judeo-Christian apocalypse, and um, the, the question is, is this liberal irony or is this kind of sort of pastiche devoid of any, of any laughter? And you can judge yourselves if you read the novel, but some ex just to give you a sense of the tone. Um, so the cone, the, the protagonist, um, um, teaches um, human speech to a first chimpanzee who then uh, names the fellow chimpanzees with um, Christian uh, biblical names, teaches them English. Um, a new covenant is made, not 10 commands, but seven admonitions, um, anti-authoritarian, um, and fixing the face of a cliff, and it all goes terribly wrong, and, and there are these sort of kinds of constant um, cross-references, um, not only to uh, the book of Revelation, but to the, the whole biblical um, uh, tradition, and the Hebrew Bible in particular. Um, definition three, I'm, I'm sort of rushing ahead, or uh, idea three is, um, um, Amy Hungerford's idea in, in, in an interesting book of um, her definition of postmodern belief, um, the, her suggestion in particular that sincerity overshadows irony as a literary mode when the ambiguities of language are imagined as being religiously empowered. Writers in this mode see fracture and materialism not as, a, not as ends in themselves, but as the conditions of transcendence. So. Um, what she's interested in is the kind of sort of performative gesture of religious practice without the, uh, the, without the sort of confidence of religious belief, but with the sincerity of religious belief. Um, um, and she, she, she advances in the final uh, chapter of that book the hypothesis that this could be considered a new sort of sublime. Um, humorlessness is another way of sort of saying of describing this, if I think of the most influential example from, from my canon, which is Cormac McCarthy's The Road, which is the most humorless book I ever read. Um, and you may have seen John Hillcoat's film, which is arguably even worse. I'll just show you some, some, um, uh, some, some images from that as a, as a reminder for those of you who saw it. I'm not going to talk about it at great length, except to say that, um, of course, a lot of the sort of critical response to this um, did indeed on both to the novel and to the film, which were hugely influential and really sort of shaped the subsequent um, corpus of um, apocalyptic fiction. Um, a lot of the critical response focuses on the, the kind of sort of implicit um, Christological or sort of at times ex almost explicit Christological imagery in, in the novel and in the film. You see the kind of sort of crucifix-like collapsing structures and of course the father and the son who for those of you who know the novel are only ever referred to as the father and the son or the man and the boy um, yeah crucifix like as I said um, so critics who've written on this uh, say and they find it difficult to articulate the exact relation between this and the and the book of revelation they've called some people have called it the um, a look at the bleaker side of revelation some have called it um, yes brilliant thank you um, the, uh, an imitation, um, there's a sort of difficulty of how to articulate this sort of um, effort at rewriting or sort of um, reframing the, the story, which could be seen as pastiche or could be seen as irony, but it's certainly not prompting any laughter 
uh, in this context. Um, my fourth um, uh, suggestion, and there's only one more to go, is um, the idea of postmodern apocalypse suggested by Theresa Heffernan um, in, in one of the earlier studies, one of the sort of main studies to actually introduce that category of post-apocalyptic culture, which focuses on the idea of crisis. Um, now, it, it, the, 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 etymology, the etymology of crisis, of the word crisis, of course, Kirain suggests a kind of sort of cut, but what Heffernan sa says and what other critics have since sort of emphasized as well, think of Manuel Castell's work, for example, is that crisis actually is now sort of very much imagined and represented as a kind of sort of lingering condition, a sort of, um, we're, we're, we're caught in these sort of um, concentric circles of ever-expanding crisis, and she talks about apocalypse in the same way. There is no seizure, there is no revelation, there is no moment of the end of time um, uh, in, in her understanding of apocalypse. Um, I'll skip these because this is when I thought that eight minutes suddenly could magically develop and become 15, um, but it's a sort of question of um, the relation between event and, um, and being. Um, Apocalypse is no longer imagined in McCarthy's novel as, an, as a sort of singular event, or rather the event is not described, it's not explicit, uh, it's not explicitly mentioned, but it sort of a, becomes an existential condition. Hence, it is very difficult, um, I suggest, to sort of imagine any form of kind of sort of um, ironic distance from this or any form of sort of um, self-reflective uh, um, laughter at all. Um, the, um, this is quite a nice um, idea presented by uh, Evan Cord Williams in this book. Um, Unjustly, sort of not unjustly, rather neglected in secondary criticism, but rather sort of rather wonderful combined and uneven apocalypse, um, where he talks about where he sort of actually hijacks the idea of revelation for his own purpose, and he says revelation means literally, of course, I mean apocalypse means unfolding, and he says too much has been revealed, too much has been. We're in this kind of sort of condition of of stasis, of sort of um, of permanent crisis, because there's too much of everything, too many telling images, too many public secrets, and just it's piling up everywhere. So sort of apocalyptic clutter, as it were. And this brings me to the final point, which I'm just mentioning slightly sort of provocatively, because it's a point that I cannot quite sort of feel myself identify with. But the, my suggestion is that sort of one way of tr sort of going against this sense of apocalyptic clutter, of sort of endlessly perpetuating humorlessness, is to sort of re- um, to, to, to return our attention to um, the original sort of religious significance of apocalypse as revelation proper, as a kind of sort of turning point. So um, my very last uh, suggestion then, a bit like um, Seth's talk earlier, is to sort of reconsider the importance of laughter and to reconsider the, the significance of the apocalyptic moment in the book of Revelation, which is the description of the heavenly Jerusalem as a space, um, you know, as a, as a space, which is precisely a space after the end of time, but also as a sort of space where God, I quote, shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, but the former things have passed away. So this is sort of, is it, as it were, if we started with Rorty, um, and I'm simplifying, but just for the sake of sort of having a conversation, if we start with Rorty, which encourages us to embrace irony without laughter, this would then probably, going full circle, be a sort of a suggestion of, you know, a sort of idea of apocalyptic laughter without irony, a sort of sincere laughter.
start speaking while I'm, Albert's doing the, yeah, just um, thanks so much, Florian. Already, I think we see a, a wonderful conversation opening up between the past and artistic practice and in recent decades and imagining the future or perhaps no future. Um, yeah, now our next speaker is Shumi Bors. Uh, Shumi is an architectural writer, historian, editor, and teacher. She's senior lecturer and coordinator of contextual studies in architecture at Central St. Martin's College of Art and Design. And she's curated exhibitions at the Royal Institute of British Architects in London and for the British Pavilion at the 2016 Venice Biennale of Architecture. Recent publications by Shumi include Home Economics and Wherever You Find People, the Radical Schools of Oscar Niemeyer, Leonor Brizola, and Darcy Ribeiro. Okay, Shumi. Thank Thanks very much. Um, Thanks for having me. Um, I haven't, haven't been here and uh, met most of your department yet, so it's a departure from the silo of architecture. So thank you very much for the invitation. Um, and also apologies for coming uh, a little bit late. I just landed today from Dubai, which is a place rather devoid of irony, um, certainly architecturally speaking, although you'd be forgiven for thinking. So um, today I'm going to... Uh, wear my curator's hat and talk to you largely about this um, exhibition that I had the honor to work on with the artist Pablo Bronstein, um, Argentinian-British uh, artist, who was invited to um, make a proposal uh, to, um, to have an exhibition at the RIBA. So already we're playing with some fun things because Pablo, not being an architect, um, being an artist, feels uh, very much at liberty to talk about architecture and to do so in the very home of, the sanctified home of architecture at the RIBA um, was an opportunity for him to have fun. And so um, what he'd been looking at, I'm just going to dive straight into it. And I should say this is a very unscholarly, confessional narrative sort of um, presentation. Um, there's almost no writing in it. Um, so yes, what, what Pablo had been observing for the last few years um, is a style of architecture, a style of construction rather, we can debate that, um, which he has dubbed pseudo-Georgian. And so um, while Pablo uses a shellac ink and dip pen to make his drawings in a very traditional way, in the way that you might imagine um, illuminated letters being made or, or much later drawings in the 18th century, uh, what he's drawing here, and all of the drawings in the exhibition are of buildings that were constructed after 1985. Um, so let's say after certain policies to do with what we might imagine Thatcherism were involved in, in um, construction in, in the built industry in the UK. So here is an example um, on Hackney Road of uh, what Pablo would uh, identify as a pseudo-Georgian building, which is to say that it looks and has the characteristics, the essence of um, Georgian architecture and all that that holds, which I'll go into as quickly as I can. I have way too many slides. Um, but you can, you can spot, or one can spot, um, certain insincerities in the architecture. For example, there's a glue line joint right in the middle of the um, facade there, which tells you that those aren't real bricks. They're not laid. They're a panel of brick slips, which is usually about three to five millimeters thick. So it's the appearance of brick, um, the reassurance of brick, the symbolism of brick, the significance, and, and so on. Um, but uh, it's not brick. And also, uh, 
the symmetry of this building, while symmetry is uh, an important tenet of Georgian architecture, this tells you that those are flats, um, that this building is subdivided and was indeed constructed as to be subdivided as flats. Now, a Georgian townhouse would not have this um, arrangement of windows. So there's a... I suppose I wanted to start, uh, without all the caveats, I <laughs> wanted to start with um, my first definition of irony when I was about um, ten, nine or ten years old. It was from watching a film with Winona Ryder and Ethan Hawke, both of whom I had a crush on. And um, the film's called Reality Bites, by the way. And the definition um, of irony that Troy gives Lelena is, is something like the literal meaning is the opposite of the implied meaning, which is a rather glib, um, sarcastic take on... I should move on. Um, on, on what irony is. Um, but I think what Pablo is playing with, particularly in this series, is um, a shared knowledge, uh, a shared knowledge from which we can depart and, and uh, from which we read certain meanings. So perhaps we might consider that irony might only be possible, you know, those departures of implied meaning and literal meaning, if there's at least a body of shared knowledge. And this is the case in, I think, Georgian architecture, particularly in this country, very much in this city. If you haven't noticed it already, then I hope you do after this um, soon-to-be-curtailed slideshow. Um, so this was the exhibition, the full title of which was Pablo Bronstein, Conservatism or the Long Reign of Pseudo-Georgian Architecture. Pablo wanted to call the show Conservatism. The Reba said no, um, lest anyone offend anyone think that the Reba is a conservative organization, either big P politics or not. So we got away with it by saying Pablo Bronstein conservatism, and then we sort of had fun with a long um, title that was playing with, with sort of 18th century um, social comedy. Um, theatrical productions had often these long-winded titles. Um, and as you can see, most of the show was 50 of Pablo's new drawings, all of buildings after 1985, with a few pieces of, let's say, authentic Georgian architecture taken from the RIBA collection, and a few um, more recent declensions of Georgian-style architecture, or in Pablo's words, pseudo-Georgian architecture. Um, while we were coming out, in fact, a few days before we um, opened the exhibition, there was this wonderful piece in the FT, which I encourage you to read, called Why Do Horrible People Like Georgian Architecture? Um, and so, <laughs> sorry, excuse me. And so um, I, I'll just kind of leave this with you in terms of the significance and the uses of Georgian architecture and whether or not sincerity comes into it, whether symbolism represents all sorts of other power structures, um, which one can decide where on the fence one is. Also, while producing this exhibition, I went up to see my parents. I noticed, this is a genuine photo from the car window, I noticed this wonderful um, caravan. And uh, perhaps this may speak to um, the previous presentation, uh, Florian, where you were talking about pastiche as an absence of laughter. I, I genuinely don't think that the person buying this caravan thought, piss take kind of model for a caravan. They probably thought that this is, I mean, it's probably an aspirational series of caravan model names. Uh, we can imagine perhaps what the, what the other models are, what's a more luxury version of pastiche. Um, maybe there's one called Sincerity, I don't know. Um, and then this is my parents' house, and I hadn't realized it was pseudo-Jordan until working on the show. I hadn't realized that these fiberglass columns that mean nothing to the, the, the geometry of the facade, it does nothing, but there's still a sort of remembrance. Like we know what architecture is supposed to look like. You're supposed to, you know, like colonnades, so we'll just have this plastic one. And, and this is my parents' house. They don't know I'm showing it to you. Um, <laughs> This is on Canvey Island, where I went with my students, um, my undergraduate students. We were looking at um, 
we didn't mean to be looking at Brexit land, but we ended up looking at the architecture of uh, the incredibly independent, uh, fluorescent architecture of Canvey Island and the outer reaches of Essex, and we found lots of pseudo-Georgian, and we were thinking about what this means in that context, what it means when um, there's relaxed planning regulations and people choose to build in a conservative manner. How am I doing? Okay, all right, so a bit more of Canvey uh, uh, and a bit more of Pablo. This, if you, uh, you might not recognize, but perhaps some of you might, this is Waitrose on Holloway Road. Why uh, the supermarket <laughs> needs to have this sort of piano nobile with the uh, Doric columns and, and again have these allusions to um, Georgian architecture and just as a, as a personal, take it as a subjective shorthand, Georgian architecture is classicism done British. So just enough to know that we know what class classicism is, but brick, thank you very much, and, and a little bit more dignity than, like, say, the Baroque. And so Georgian architecture in, in an extremely condensed shorthand for me is, is a kind of British-accented classicism or Palladianism. But why a supermarket needs to adopt this, and particularly a waitrose needs to adopt this kind of architecture, we can, um, we can continue thinking about it. These are more Pablo's drawings. This is a much more humble abode. Um, definitely not uh, an original Georgian construction. You can see there's a funny thing going on on the roof there. But still, the windows and the symmetry of the windows suggest that the builder has a nod towards um, Georgian architecture. And in fact, the prevalence of... Um, I'll just skip these slightly. But the prevalence of vernacular architecture, as in not architected architect, uh, architecture, but rather built, constructed, um, pattern book architecture. In fact, pattern books flourished during the Georgian period because, again, we're talking about a sort of shared allusion to a style that means certain things, and then uh, we can depart from it, we can um, just have enough of an essence of it, and we can read various degrees of sincerity or not. Um, I'm happy to leave this slideshow with you or supply any more um, slides to you if, if you would like. I'm just going to skip through them really, really quickly because I have um, so little time. I'm probably going to take an extra minute. So um, this is a version of what I was just talking about in terms of vernacular um, liberty. Once you have a common ground and then we can decide whether it's humorous or sincere. This is, um, again, constructed, uh, I would imagine, in the late 80s. And here you have something, a keystone on the brick arch that you can see at the top of the building. There's a keystone in the middle of the arch, which is, I suppose, correct, although it's stone and the rest of the, brick, uh, the, rest of the arch is brick. But the, the keystone is also being used at the end to terminate the arches. That's wrong. Um, but it doesn't matter because it suggests to us enough that we know what it's alluding to, and then we can decide, perhaps worth noting that Pablo's previous um, study of architecture before this was on postmodernism and how we might use these signs and symbols and shared knowledge to either produce something as a sincere reflection of the past and its values or not. Um, but what I really wanted to skip through to, so we're seeing some authenticity and some less authenticity. Um, this is, uh, I believe this is, um, Sorry, this is completed in 2013. So um, again, extremely pseudo-Georgian. It's trying to fit in very well with a, um, what we know of Georgian architecture, large windows, nice flat brick, um, symmetry all the way. Um, but yes, 2013. Um, and you can see a sort of um, vague uh, correlation with the simplified geometries, even in um, much more modern or modernist 
architecture that's being built. These are all Barrett homes, uh, by the way. So these aren't high-level architecture. This is, excuse me, these aren't high-level architecture. This is mass-produced. What, as far as Barrett are concerned, what people like, what sells. And so again, we can uh, we can think about whether these are sincere declensions of the past and its values or not. I, I would say they are. I don't think there's irony um, intended within these designs. That, that I don't think people buy them as pseudo whatever. But what I really wanted to show you, and I will get there, is the show. These are some um, nice bits of <coughs> something that looks like my parents' house there. Nice bits of fiberglass. Um, the Georgian door, reimagined as a remote control garage door, is one of my favorite things. I mean, the, panel, the wooden panel door that you see on um, Georgian architecture, but reimagined as a, as a car door is fantastic. She's also great. Um, but what I wanted to show you this week is, is this. I hadn't expected this. You know, we're, we talked with Albert about um, this, this in summer, no, I think July, August, we talked about uh, this particular event, but this paper was released on November 3rd, so really, really very recent. And this is about a government um, consultation group, um, policy uh, advisory committee that has um, been about building architecture, building more homes. Now, we all know that uh, Britain is in a sort of housing crisis in the sense of there's not enough of the right kind of housing for those who are in crisis. Um, not that we aren't building things. Um, and so the current thinking on uh, solving this is to build beautiful, build better, essentially, again, to condense the rhetoric. It's if we build in a traditional style, um, people will like it more, and therefore it's better. Um, and this isn't ironic at all, but this is an espousal, again, of traditional values. This is the image that's used on the policy paper. Clearly, this is Georgian architecture, and this is what's being propagated, I believe, without a sense of irony. Um, the person appointed to chair this committee, and this will be final, um, is Roger Scruton. Uh, um, again, we can uh, perhaps infer or assume some of Roger Scruton's values from the books that he's written on architecture, or if not, some of the books that he's written on politics. Um, I really didn't know about this when I named that exhibition Conservatism or the Long Reign of Pseudo-Georgian Architecture, but it seems this is not ironic at all. This has come around to be. It is the Long Reign of Pseudo-Georgian Architecture. I think I'll stop there. Thank you very much. Thanks, Shumi. Um, our next speaker is Lan Abscogati. Um, Lan is lecturer in history and theory of art at the Slade School of Fine Art. Um, her primary research interests are in modern and, <coughs> and contemporary art, as well as theories relating to Marxism, race, and gender. Uh, and Lan is currently working on a book with the provisional title, The Art of Living, Social Practice and State Formation in American Art. Um, thank you very much, and thanks for uh, this invitation. So, as the art critic Morgan Quaintance noted in 2015, the primary tonal register for post-internet art, and I would also suggest probably post-internet fashion and music, maybe literature as well, um, the primary tonal register has been irony. Post-internet is a category much contested over the last 10 years or so within art history and criticism, but usefully stands to describe a broad range of artistic practices that incorporate in their form and or content modes of information delivery, relationality or representation that emerged after the internet. 
A key feature of post-internet art lies in its ambivalent relationship to the aesthetics of high capitalist culture. And the last Berlin Biennial, um, not the one that happened this year, but the one before in 2016, represented one of the most emblematic exhibitions of this kind of work and served to further cohere and clarify central motifs within the field. So some of these in terms of that um, like mimicry but ambivalent relationship to a high capitalist culture, um, this work by this artist Deborah Delmar, she turns herself into a corporation and the work she presented there was a juice bar. Uh, next to that is a very complicated project about the Sri Lankan war by Christopher Calendron Thomas that I can't explain right now, but um, looks something like a Foxton's showroom. And then the the branding of the exhibition was, um, again, incredibly sort of slick and uh, reliant on contemporary design aesthetics. So while the tangibility and repetition of these tropes make for a strongly uniform and thus recognizable style, their meaning is harder to determine. Because of the slippery mimicry of the visual tropes associated with luxury lifestyle advertising and fashion, viewers, critics, and artists often ask or are asked the question, is this mimicry as irony, critique, or affirmation? This confusion over what mimicry means in the field denotes the particular flavor of irony that dominates in this culture, one that is maybe from what I looked at this week in um, preparation for this event, maybe it's better defined as post-irony. So from what I understand from looking at more recent literary theory, um, uh, the, 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 the post-irony is something that rather than, whereas an earlier version of irony was explicit in order to produce a joke, what is said clearly means the opposite. Um, post-irony is implicit, uh, tricksy, and as I understand, only clearly a joke to those who get the references. So that comes back to what was being said earlier about this idea of shared knowledge. So post-irony is more heavily reliant on a kind of scene, uh, shared references, and the idea that everything can be shrugged off as a joke or disavowed in the last instance. This is obviously a genre supported by the capacity for online engagement to rapidly produce, renew, and transform shared points of references. Or you could think of the form of a meme and can obviously be baffling for those unfamiliar to its linguistic and visual codes. Um, this is one of the adverts that was used for the Berlin Biennial, and I'll talk about it a little bit, but I'm going to just keep it up in the background. Um, in the last few years since Brexit, the election of Trump, and the seemingly unstoppable rightward drift globally, the meaning of this tonal register of post-irony has begun, obviously, to seem more alarming. In particular, as the political movement described as the alt-right has come into view, it became clear that the language, aesthetics, tone, means of organization, while maintaining in those ways um, a kind of classic, familiar forms of white supremacy and misogyny as an unchanged tenet from earlier fascist movements, um, the way in which this operates is now hard to track, detect, and criticize due to the thick layer of irony which cloaks the movement, which has func uh, multiple functions, as, um, as noted by Anna Teixeira Pinto. So firstly, irony in this context um, 
maybe I will actually just close that, but we can come back to it and talk to it more. Um, so firstly, irony within this context of the alt-right consistently disavows uh, responsibility, or maybe not even just the alt-right, but within the political climate that we're in now, or a, or a growing uh, fascistic climate. Um, so it disavows responsibility. I was only joking when I was really racist or sexist. Secondly, it enables a form of entryism where those widely accustomed to such uses of irony, so a kind of widespread culture of irony, um, come into contact through the permanently distancing articulation of um, repellent beliefs with the real deal. So suddenly you're confronted, oh, that wasn't a joke, that was actually real. As Andrew Anglin, and I'm hesitant to cite him, but it's kind of um, notable, he's the publisher of the world's biggest neo-Nazi website, The Daily Stormer, he explained that his publication works on a principle of, I quote, non-ironic Nazism masquerading as ironic Nazism. So I repeat that because it's a little confusing. Non-ironic Nazism masquerading as ironic Nazism. With that meaning, that um, it, it, that kind of idea means that, that it has the capacity to cover its back always as a sort of joke, but at the same time to appeal to those entirely couched in the kind of humor which dominates image boards, online youth culture, and, and as I said, a sort of general condition of irony. Much of this humor is reliant on the extremities of transgression, the limits of acceptable speech, um, and the forms of transgression that stand in opposition to an online culture where just as much as post-irony in the far right has proliferated, also progressive leftist values have, have flourished as well. So I'm thinking about the mainstreaming of radical politics in the shape of so-called Tumblr feminism, um, the relationship of Black Lives Matter to um, online social media platforms, a kind of woke Twitter commentary, new, new movements around sexual and gender politics, as well as campus politics. So if arts critical discourses in the West have tended to align themselves with such, with such progressive values, while all the while complicit with capital exploitation, racism, and sexism through arts institutions, Today, critique sometimes seems impossible, and as Marina Fischmidt explains, this has fueled valorizations of simply acknowledging our complicity as the strategy to deal with this. So I think that would be a good example of just complicity being the means to deal with a situation um, of like never-ending perpetuation of inequalities. Um, it also has some relationship to a sort of pseudo-transgression in the case of more extreme cases of iron, post-irony, where like the entryism associated with the alt-right, this can lead to actual fascist organizing within the sphere of contemporary art, which I can talk about more later if, if, if there's interest. Why pseudo-transgression? Well, simply put, racism, xenophobia, and misogyny have never, uh, should never have been imagined as capable of being ironic, of course. But um, what I want to do in the last two minutes is kind of point to something else that I notice as having, or the last minute, how long do I have? Like one minute? Two minutes. So um, in the last two minutes, what I wanted to address was something that I see as like a reaction to this um, thick kind of coat of irony, which is something that emerges around a sort of new, new sincerity. And again, from having read a little bit about literary theory, I understand, or, or cultural... Um, like cultural studies, this idea of new sincerity is something that maybe came up 
in the early 2000s in those fields, but I don't think have really been discussed so much within the field of art. But now I see um, an emergence of this sort of new sincerity or new new sincerity again, which only in the last issue of Art Monthly was mentioned twice in two separate articles, one in a review um, of an exhibition by Maria Walsh and then also in a whole feature by Bob Dickinson, so it feels very present. And, and obviously it's a, it's a strategy that's being articulated as something that maybe can counter this sort of thick layer of post-irony. But the problem I have when I see work, and I'm going to show you some in a second, that seems to fit into this sort of um, new sincerity is because of my own relationship to a culture of irony, and I think other, uh, you know, lots of people's relationship to a culture of irony, is that you are left questioning, like, is that for real? Is that really sincere? So an example I would give of that would be work by an artist called Holly White, um, I know Holly, so I think she probably is quite sincere. But when I first encountered her work, I kind of was like, is this work really for real? It's so sort of scrappy in opposition to the really slick quality of what you see in that Berlin Biennial examples I showed. And she also makes these works that are incredibly sort of personal in their address, um, very interior, sometimes quite solipsistic, um, and has also made works which are like... Uh, Actually, I don't have an image of it, but works that are like her and her friends making a story shot in Sainsbury's really, really scrappily on an iPhone that is just them hanging out and talking about what they want to buy at Sainsbury's. So a very, very mundane quality to it. Um, another artist that I would see in this vein of a sort of new sincerity is someone like Flo Brooks, who makes these very domestic kind of everyday scenes um, in his paintings, again, like uh, uh, this sort of relationship to spaces of social encounter, which although they're not idealized, there's something weird here about the appearance of the supermarket. And it's funny that Shumi also showed Waitrose because if Holly White makes this like film about Sainsbury's as a space of social encounter, and Flo Brooks is also showing it here, but it seems like a very weird kind of social space. But, um, yeah, the question I have with this work, which seems so sort of sincere, is how to unpick this. How can the sincerity of this work be taken seriously when the thick coat of irony throws everything serious into question? And as much as I enjoy some of this work, I find the sort of absence of negativity as well as its solipsistic quality maybe uh, sometimes lacking a bit. Thanks very much, Lan. I, I, the sort of connections between seriousness and laughter just seem to be endlessly fascinating. I was thinking when Lan was speaking um, about Freud's theorization of the joke and jokes and the relation to the unconscious, where Freud says that the joke can often have very serious intents or can re reflect very deeply held feelings and also very ugly feelings. And um, so maybe there's always been this kind of awkward divide between sincerity and laughter and irony. Um, our last speakers are Peel and Galia Collective. Um, they completed a joint PhD in Goldsmiths in 2013, uh, and they have had solo shows in the UK and other countries and have presented live work at the Stedelijk Museum in Amsterdam, the 5th Berlin Biennale and the 5th Montreal Biennale, as well as at Kunsthal Oslo, Arnolfini Bristol, and late at Tate Britain. Um, and their work incorporates a fascinatingly diverse range of practices, including film, performance, collage, 
installation and printmaking, as well as music and choreographed movement. So, okay. Thank you for that uh, long introduction. <laughs> Hopefully this um, follows on quite nicely from some of the things we've been um, hearing, and I'm looking forward to the discussion part. Um, we wanted to start with uh, an anecdote that I think reinforces some of what um, Lana's been saying. Um, some years ago, we had a student uh, in a tutorial presenting us with work that she insisted represented her Zionist views. And we spent much of the tutorial convinced that the work was ironic and impressed with her straight-faced act. At last, she convinced us that she was sincere, but we told her that the flaw in the work was that given the context it was to be seen in, which was an art school degree show, um, the audience would doubtless make the same assumption we had and view the work as some kind of joke about such views rather than an actual presentation of them. In the event, we were proven correct as discussions with several visitors to the exhibition confirmed our prediction, which isn't to say that all art is by definition left-wing or anti-Zionist, which of course is not the case, but that much of the meaning in art, especially in post-conceptual contemporary art, is derived from its context. So art is first and foremost a framing discourse, which, as we recognize from modernity onwards at least, can encircle just about any object or image or phenomenon. And this is why humor, which we're not gonna actually talk that much about, um, we're gonna focus more on irony than laughter, I think, to begin with for now anyway. Um, but I think humor, like horror and eroticism, is so hard to perform in the context of art because whilst we can certainly bring humor into the gallery, just as we can bring any non-art into the discursive circle of art, by doing so, we can almost guarantee that the joke will not be funny, occasioning instead a discussion about humor in art. Now, irony, by contrast, as has already been noted, is a core tool for artists rather than a theme. We immediately recognize it as a mode of critique to the point where we expect it and seek it even when it isn't there. Conceding that all critique is co-optable and therefore impotent, artists all too often, and again, um, as Lan was saying, point to the limits of art by asserting this impotence with varying degrees of sarcasm and cynicism. The recipient of the message is, of course, meant to recognize the irony and congratulate him or herself for being sophisticated enough to be included in the joke. There are many problems with this tool, but for our purposes, we can say that it relies on certain conditions of production and reception, which we can no longer count on if we ever could. So irony relies, um, as has also been pointed out in several presentations, on hierarchies of knowledge, different kinds of irony posit different relationships between those in the know and those who have only partial knowledge. Um, and it's a good question whether post-irony is indeed post in that sense, if we, if we are to consider irony within those terms. But whether we look at Socratic irony, where one might pretend to know less than one does to mock someone else, or dramatic or tragic irony, where the protagonist doesn't grasp the full extent of his or her circumstances and brings about their downfall, the assumption is that there's a truth to be uncovered by the ironist. The question is, who shares this knowledge? Now, much has been written about our post-truth age, and this has also come up already, but one thing that's becoming clear is that in the information age, the ground establishing the relationship between an author and an audience has fundamentally shifted. And this is key for evaluating truth or sincerity. We're all too often faced with evaluating images and ideas taken out of context. And this is why I think the social media thing keeps coming up because so often you encounter something quoted, retweeted, um, manipulated to such a degree that you're not sure whether it was intended ironically or not um, to begin with and whether that even matters by the point at which you encounter it. 
So in a field where appropriation is no longer a transgressive strategy, but a basic mode of communication, to hope that an ironic subversion might undermine some hegemonic position of power feels hopelessly naive. And this is why we have this Adbusters image on. I, I feel like that's such a kind of 90s moment that's just foreclosed to us because you know to hope that this might have any kind of critical power today just seems ridiculous. Um, I can totally imagine McDonald's themselves using this as an ad. It's not, you know, that's not even hard to conceive of. Um, in an era of kind of meme wars where we've got um, a cartoon image that's, you know, made by somebody with no affiliation to the right whatsoever being appropriated and becoming a kind of symbol of the alt-right um, versus some character like uh, the Philadelphia hockey mascot, uh, Gritty, being appropriated as a kind of leftist symbol. So none of these things you know, end up where they begin. Things are constantly shifting, um, and it's hard to evaluate this ground. So it's easy to see calls for moving past irony and embracing a new sincerity as ways of overcoming this impasse. A new kind of authenticity pervades much work concerned with identity, where an artist speaks from a position of personal experience, which we don't have time, sadly, to illustrate. But I'm sure you can imagine such work. There's also something potentially interesting in light of the overproduction of subjectivity um, that's kind of required um, in the constant manufacturing of social media identities and so on. Um, there's something interesting in, in rejecting the demand to identify whether one is enjoying something ironically or not. So as a kind of withdrawal, ambiguity can be an interesting tool. Um, but the more explicitly taste becomes central to social stratification, the more refuse, so yeah, uh, to continue that point, sorry, the more, um, the more explicitly taste becomes central to social stratification, the more refusing to participate in these kind of taste reversal games of irony um, uh, becomes a kind of critical position. However, in both of these options, both the kind of uh, super sincere kind of uh, speaking from within a, a position of identity and the kind of um, withdrawal of any kind of identification of a position, there's a kind of retreat into total subjectivity. And this is also suggested by the post-irony manifesto, which we started out with. Um, that kind of total subjectivity seems to us to preclude the engagement with the social that is a prerequisite of criticality. So we might feel like we're becoming better people when we appreciate magic and beauty, as suggested, whether ironically or not, by the post-ironic uh, manifesto. But this solipsistic appreciation can only induce creative freedom in those who are already free to create. We can describe our situation, um, our situated experiences, but unless this leads to the production of new social contexts, we lose out on the opportunity to change the circumstances that produce these experiences. Okay, so um, Gali described, I suppose, the problem with our current post-ironic uh, condition, and now we would like to propose maybe not exactly a way out, but maybe a different way of thinking about it and to look at an example from art which we think is a bit more complex and interesting. Um, so first, a kind of theoretical tool uh, that we used a lot is uh, Søren Kierkegaard's first work, his MA thesis, is the concept of irony and how can you take a philosopher serious if his first uh, work is dedicated to the concept of irony. Um, but um, so in, in this book, Kierkegaard defends something that he calls private irony. And in a kind of almost like a footnote, he describes a particular example which we found interesting, 
where a police detective comes dressed as a thief in the middle of the night um, and relishes the possibility of detainment, um, sorry, yeah, of detainment, uh, though he has done no wrong. So this is a quote from Kierkegaard. Um, he should be wholly, um, he should be wholly successful in leading uh, people astray, perhaps to be arrested as a suspicious character or, um, or involved in interesting domestic situations, um, then the ironist has attained his wish. So, you know, Kikoro says that this police detective who dresses up as a thief and doesn't actually steal anything or take anything or do anything wrong is successful when he is being arrested and still not kind of release or relinquish the truth um, of his real true identity. So the private ironist might initially sound like a post-ironic character in that his position is never clarified to a public and never established in a, and um, never establishes a, com a community of those in the know. So it kind of doesn't do what irony does of a community that understands the real true meaning of the speech act. Um, however, his actions do have public consequences and insofar as they do, they work to establish a new community without directly communicating his position. The ironic, detective the ironic detective forces the police to consider the law in that the law is contextual and circumstantial and, that nothing, and has nothing to do with the truth. Um, and so what Kierkegaard describes is a kind of suspension of, of the release or the revelation, um, to go back to that concept, of the truth. The truth is somewhere out there, um, and kind of the truth um, challenges the notion of, of truth and, and kind of like, and, and legal procedures maybe, but it's not being given in, the, in actuality, as Kierkegaard says, but only postponed to a kind of future community, a possibility of a community in the future. Um, in, so with that in mind, we would like to illustrate this critical operation of irony with an example. And to go back to um, the Zionist Israeli context. In 2014, Jerusalem-based artists, uh, the Salamanca Group, which are two um, um, artists, Leo Maas and Diego Rotman. They were, um, um, so the Salamanca Group was invited to build a sukkah for the Jewish festival of Sukkot, or the Feast of Tabernacles, in which traditionally Jews celebrate the nomadic life in the desert of the biblical 40 years of exodus from Egypt by uh, building temporary dwellings outside their homes. You might have come across this in, um, in um, Stamford Hill or other, in other locations. Um, for this project, the Eternal Sukkah, Salamanca purchased a makeshift Bedouin, ho Bedouin house from the Yahalin community and reconstructed it in Jerusalem, crowning the structure with palm leaves in accordance with kosher Jewish laws. The obvious irony is that the invitation to celebrate the Jewish holiday was clearly not intended as an opportunity to foreground the actual immiseration of Israel's current nomadic community, whose temporary illegal dwellings are routinely bulldozed by the state. And in fact, when they kind of smuggled this house, temporary shelter from the Bedouin to Jerusalem, they had to do that um, under cover of night. Um, you know, they were afraid that uh, there would be discovered and indeed a few days after the bulldozers showed up again and kind of bulldozed this, um, these structures and kind of forced the Bedouins to move on. Um, so 
However, at no point did the artists reveal their intention to be at odds with those of the municipality, the funders of the project, the government of Israel. And indeed, they could, not, they could be said to have followed the instructions to build the sukkah in commemoration of the Exodus in earnest. Although creating a provocation, like the thief who steals nothing, they, ne they never really transgressed the constraints of the invitation. And something really interesting happened afterwards. Um, the National Museum in Jerusalem um, purchased the work, obviously knowing what, what it was doing, and uh, the Salamanca group decided to, I mean, in advance, they kind of announced to the Bedouin that they were giving them half the uh, funding. And they gave them exactly half the, the money uh, paid by the museum and credited them as the designers of this structure. So in, in a way, the, the work was also kind of used to um, ask questions about kind of public, public funding structures and who art is for, etc. Um, okay, so it is this kind of irony, clo maybe closer perhaps to what uh, Zizek calls over-identification, or as he defines it, taking the system more seriously than it takes itself seriously, that we might be salvageable, that, that we think um, might be salvageable from the post-ironic moment. Neither avoiding commitment nor absconding the social for a private or subjective experience, the type of irony, this type of irony, is vital for critical practice. Rather than producing social distinctions of taste, it hails a new social sphere by forcing splits in the pseudo-totalities of the present. Harnessing at once both irony and sincerity, this strategy undoes the false dichotomies of the post-ironic condition. Yeah. Um, I was wondering if the speakers might like to go up to the front so that audience members might find it easier to address them. Thank, thank you very much. Um, to all of the speakers for um, such wonderful, rich papers. Um, there's a lot to digest there, and it'll be interesting to see how the discussion puts them together. So would anybody like to begin with the first question? Comment? I really, well, I, 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 I would just like to come in with Pilangalia's um, mention of Kierkegaard, which I thought was fascinating. And I, I, I was thinking, I don't know whether you've thought about Franz Kafka as a kind of post-ironist and of works like The Trial and Metamorphosis. And the, the, the idea of the policeman coming in just seemed to me very much like the beginning of Kafka's The Trial. And I, do, I don't know if you... If that sparks any thoughts in your... Um, maybe closer to Josephine, the singer, um, than, like she's, she's the most kind of true private ironist of Kafka's creations, I suppose. He lost his last uh, story, if you don't know it. Um, it. Because in a way, she, does, she doesn't produce any new knowledge. She doesn't split anything. She doesn't kind of reveal anything. And yet she does something interesting and, and kind of like... She, she sort of creates a community around the kind of non-gesture in a way. So she doesn't kind of like claim a special 
language for art, which some get and some don't. It's you might like to describe the story a little bit. Yeah, I'm not sure everyone's heard it just very quickly. So, do, does, do, do people know the uh, Kafka's uh, Josephine? No, okay. Uh, some do, some yeah. The, the last stories are brilliant, like the the, the hunger artist and uh, Josephine. Maybe is even better. Uh, in the story about the mouse people, who are kind of like um, I suppose like uh, like hardworking uh, Polish Jews or something like that. Um, they work so hard, they have loads of children, so they can't stop working ever. And out of this social context uh, emerges a character called Josephine who develops the ability to sort of not even whistle, but kind of makes this kind of little sound, which some of the other mice interpret as a form of singing. But if it's, it's not, they're all capable of doing that, so there's nothing special about that. Um, and the, the story kind of leads to a really interesting question of whether this should be recognized as a form of art. She requests to uh, be allowed to stop working and to start um, be an artist and entertain them while they work. And they decide to refuse. Um, and she kind of recedes into oblivion and, and kind of they, they sort of all but forget about her. So they just talk about her. And, yeah. Yeah, right at the back. Um, yeah. Hi. Um, how does this work? Yeah. Yep. Okay. Um, yeah, again, touching off the final mention of uh, Kierkegaard's text on irony, I was wondering whether any of the panel were familiar with Jonathan Lear's text, A Case for Irony? Because he teases out a similarish distinction between different modes of irony uh, uh, in that text. Uh, an inferior one, which is a, what Kierkegaard calls an assistant professor's understanding of irony, <laughs> which is merely that um, it's just not saying what you mean. And then uh, Lear kind of identifies a slightly, um, well, a, a far richer and in many ways more constructive idea at work in Kierkegaard's text, which is that it's about, as you was, as was being discussed at the end, a kind of uh, refusal to fully commit, but a refusal to uh, remain uncommitted either, a kind of uh, detaching and then reattaching yourself, a constant vacillation between these two states, which enhances your relationship to the truth, you see? Uh, so I was just wondering if anybody, if anyone had anything to, any thoughts on different different modes of irony or different, um, uh, yeah, sorry. Um, just to, to answer quickly, to follow on from this um, discussion of Kierkegaard, I don't know whether we're doing justice to Kierkegaard or whether I mean, I don't know whether he would have agreed with our interpretation, but I think what I took from his idea of the private ironist is um, that really committing to one of two equally miserable options in the present is uh, not worth doing, and what you need to do is commit to some option that's yet to come or something that divides the situation and rearranges it in a way as to form, you know, to suggest new things that you might commit to, new commitments. Um, so I think... That's why I don't think uh, we have to accept that there's an opposition between irony and sincerity. I think there's a kind of irony 
which he calls aristocratic irony, which is about um, speaking over the heads of some, you know, we were talking about the ignorant audience, speaking to others over the heads of uh, those who don't get it. That produces a kind of aristocratic community as against the plebs. Um, and I think that's a really unproductive kind of irony. And I think what's interesting about um, this kind of private irony or over-identification, something that um, doesn't immediately disclose any kind of um, reversal, is that there might be a, a genuine commitment here, but maybe not to one of the given options, but to something else. No one has, has a question? Um, yeah, I was interested in, I guess you brought up Holly White's work uh, as like an example of, a, I like that because it was a kind of sincerity in, in mark making. And what I find interesting is that is, um, I think a lot of their work points to things that like cultural productions, but outside of like the art sphere, like uh, they operate a lot in the way that like a YouTuber might. And if I were to, I first came across them within an art, a fine arts sphere, but if I just find that YouTube channel, I just am cooking with their friends or overlaying bits of music, um, um, you know, then riding their bike, or whatever, um, I wouldn't necessarily draw it back to the sort of like white cube. Um, and so I'm just sort of interested in thinking through like uh, how, yeah, I guess these kind of things that kind of, and again, when you sort of uh, looking at the kind of YouTubers, you see a lot of things that end up strangely looking like kind of fine arts, but um, I wouldn't, I don't know if I want to say like sort of not like tainted with that kind of level of irony, but um, I guess maybe point to a sort of like a kind of production that is, I guess maybe, yeah, Yeah, I, I mean, I would. I think the 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 question is is kind of what Phil and Carly have started with is that um, the way in which we understand what an artwork is is so determined by the context in which we find it. And while, of course, if someone stumbled upon one of Holly's videos of her and her friends cooking just because they followed the links through on YouTube from an algorithm that was like videos of people that like cooking together, then maybe it wouldn't be understood as an artwork, but the minute it shifts into um, a gallery, it will obviously be understood differently. And I think the question for me is more interesting about um, uh, within a situation within contemporary art or culture more broadly where um, irony has been such a dominant register for so long. It's like, it's more, I'm more interested in what that... Um, desire towards some kind of sincerity, like can it form an adequate response? Or again, is it the frame in which we receive things has become so heavily determined by irony, we're always sort of second guessing, like, is this for real? Which obviously you wouldn't do if you just like came across it on YouTube randomly. So I, yeah, I don't know whether that answers what you were saying, but um, yeah. Can I follow, can I follow uh, one of the questions, maybe for Shumi, also for you. You were discussing the, the roles of Holly White and also Paolo Bronstein. And both of them seem very sincere in the way they are approaching it. And for example, in an interview that Holly Wenwright was doing with Paolo Bronstein, Holly Wenwright was asking him, it feels very ironic because you're making fun of it. And Paolo Bronstein was saying, I love Georgia architecture. And I'm, oh. I'm drawing it because I, I really like it. And I don't know 
what is their reaction when people tell them, oh, I encountered your work, I thought it was funny, and they say, no, it was not funny. Mm -hmm. What's their reaction? Yes. How, how they feel? How, I don't know, they laugh at it, they feel the work, they represent their ideas. Just take that in terms of speaking for Pablo. Um, <laughs> God, I wouldn't forget me doing that. Anyway, um, he does love not only Georgian architecture, but I think he loves pseudo-Georgian architecture more. I think there was a there was a, a broad reading of the exhibition like it was a piss take of popular taste. No, I don't think so. I think, um, or certainly that wasn't the impression that he wanted to portray. It was a very loving exhibition of a phenomenon that. Um, he wished to unpick, and, and together with the Reba collections, we managed to unpick perhaps some of the symbolism within Georgian architecture in terms of power relations, colonialism, a certain sense of security, and the way that that's being reprised both in the 80s in terms of private property ownership and again now. And there are critical things to say there. But from an aesthetic point of view, I think um, what Pablo rejoices in is the freedom from this collective uh, sort of impression of we know what this is and what it means and how it makes us feel and the freedom that that perpetuates in the built environment and the, the, the comfort found in that is something that Pablo really enjoys finding and seeing and sharing um, but by no means was it um, <coughs> a piss take as such sorry to I, I'm not very eloquent tonight um, that being said, there was two levels of interpretation in the exhibition. So from the RIBA point of view, which was the text that I had to write, sadly, was the uh, rather serious text of, you know, the context of Georgian architecture, where it comes from, um, the four King Georges, the colonial, um, uh, let's say, confidence of, of this uh, country and its empire during the times when it grew and, and why that might be uh, reprised and... and in terms of the descriptions of the artworks that I had to write, there were official line, RIBA, this is what it is, no factual. And um, Pablo then had his own level, layer of interpretation where he captions some of his own works with his own observations, and those are intensely sarcastic, um, mocking, loving, but very kind of... And I wonder if there's... Um, we've, we've talked about private ironies and... and the generosity to allow these different layers you know, to, to, to sort of take place. And I also was wondering from the last comment about YouTubers and also thinking about um, memes, as, uh, as was discussed in the last presentation, whether there's a temporality to the sorts of things that we're discussing, whether there's a sort of window um, during which a certain sort of critique is possible or a certain sort of agency is possible in, in leveraging irony or post-irony. But I don't know, I want to pass it over to Lan because I want to hear some more from um, Yeah, I, I think in terms of that, maybe, like in, I, I just think it's the, I don't know what, what you can do about it. I mean, there's always going to be condition, like interpretations of an artist's work or a writer's work that are not what, was the intention, and I suppose that hasn't shifted enormously, except that the overarching idea of what um, intention might be is kind of predetermined by a broader culture, which is this one of irony that has been so dominant. 
Um, but yeah, I don't. I'm not sure how Hollywood like respond to that. I, I'm not sure how relevant this is, but I remember one comment from Pablo while we were talking about it, and um, I should say. I was new to the repo as much as uh, Pablo was, so we had a sort of complicit relationship. And I was kind of asking how, you know, how do you feel about mocking this very favourite style of architecture that's persisted for more than 300 years in the home of it? Um, and he said, you know, the thing I like about architecture and why I keep drawing it is because it tries so hard. It tries so hard. <laughs> and it was something about that sincerity that... Also, because you can't be temporal with architecture, no, at least not uh, historically, because it costs so much money and it lasts quite a while. So it's hard to be ironic with it, which is why everyone hates the postmodernists. But yeah, um, sincerity in terms of that it was uh, an observation he'd made. I never heard an architect saying it tries so hard. Um, I think we've got time for one more question. Um, Jet. Um, I, did, I just wanted to try something out in relation to post-irony and anti-irony, because I'm just wondering whether, in terms of humour and laughter, particularly looking at this work that's on the screen that we're looking at at the moment, um, you know, this seems to me such an anti-ironic work. It's such a straight work. It's a realist work, in a way, and it's a, you know, it's a work with this kind of tragic realism, and which has got nothing funny about it at all. And when you think about the relationship to irony, you're always thinking about some relationship to humour in some form. And I wonder whether the category of anti-irony would be useful to think with, um, rather than post-irony in a work like this, and what people think about that. Because you know, that kind of in, in situations of dire economic um, duress and um, imbalances of power, etc., which this work speaks to. I mean, here is a bit of architecture, which is uh, <laughs> not expensive and is deadly serious. Um, but it, it seems very anti-ironic. So I just wondered what you thought of that. Um, I mean, it's not ha-ha funny, which I claim is incredibly difficult, if at all possible, to achieve in art. Um, I do see it as a joke at the expense of the municipality, like, you know, imagining the mayor having to go into this. Apparently, he was cringing. You know, it's this kind of uncomfortable moment. So it's, a bit, it's more like British comedy, which isn't really laugh out loud most of, most of the time. Um, but I think... The way this kind of works, why I think it's useful to think about it within the rubric of irony, is because of a certain relationship to institutions, authorship, and audiences, which is what we were kind of trying to map out. And I think part of the problem with this kind of post-internet, post-ironic moment is, as I was saying, the way you might encounter things. So actually, I know Lan has elsewhere talked about Ryan Tricartin. Interestingly, we first encountered Ryan Tricartin as a YouTube thing, and then as art, subsequently. And it's interesting how that reframes your experience. I think work, work like this tries to address that situation by um, being hyper-institutional, taking institutions into account. So uh, for a long time, I've prevaricated on this question of whether the way to deal with um, the kind of post-internet condition in relation to irony is to just give up. Like, we need new tools. We can't use this tool anymore. Um, but what I think is... Oh. What I think is an interesting um, alternative proposition. This one. <laughs> Hogging all the mics. Um, what I think is an alternative, interesting proposition is um, overproducing institutions rather than giving up on institutions within this situation. So the Salamanca group being two artists creating this institution, working with a municipal um, gallery uh, at Hanson House where they established the basement as a kind of museum of contemporary art. You know, this kind of overproduction of institutions <coughs> is, I think, key to the operation. <laughs> <laughs>
Yeah, uh, yeah. very briefly. Well, um, I think this will be our final point. Okay. Yeah, sorry. Right, no, just, no, I'll, no, be no, very, no. I'll be very brief. I just I was I, I, I like this this point a lot because listening to your your talks, which I enjoyed enormously, I I just uh, I was intrigued by how much you you spoke in different ways about anxieties related to sort of artistic uh, creative agency and you know this idea that you know the private the private iron is in a sense sort of foregrounding this dilemma by renouncing the the relationship with the with the interpretative community but i wonder whether actually sort of just picking up on your question um whether sort of sincere the, the you know uh, sincere humorlessness is a kind of sort of different way of of uh, engaging um, somebody called it provocations earlier, sort of engaging in a provocative way with this with this anxiety. You know, you sort of because I mentioned uh, McCarthy earlier, which is if you read McCarthy, if you read interviews with Cormac McCarthy, he's consistently and sincerely humorless at every level. There is no there is no irony at all, and this is quite striking after a while, and 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 it becomes quite unsettling after a while. And I think it's it's a different way, perhaps, of sort of disrupting that uh, that. Uh, assumption on behalf of the mood, if you wish. It's sort of mood is the way that a community dictates the meaning of a, of a work of art. Um, it's sort of, uh, it's going against that mood, just like the, uh, like the private iron is perhaps. Um, I think it's probably time to draw proceedings to a close. Um, just be before we end, I'd like to thank Albert um, mm -hmm. and Tamagal for organising the event. Um, I think there's, there's a lot of thought has gone into it combination of speakers. Um, I'd like to thank very much all of our speakers for this wonderful 